Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich T, and I'm your host. Uh, first off, welcome back. Uh, last week was uh, the launch week with our conversation with Ahmed Klink, and that was a lot of fun, and I got a lot of really good messages and a lot of good positive vibes from people that dug the first show. So uh, thank you for that, first off. And uh, that first episode was uh, really done very quickly, uh, edited very quickly and uh, furiously and angrily on a Sunday afternoon and a Monday morning um, in an effort to get something out that was uh, kind of a reaction to how I was feeling and the way I think a lot of other people were feeling. Uh, so with that said, uh, we're trying to improve with every episode. And uh, we're trying to uh, get the audio better, get the editing better, uh, music better, just tighten up the whole thing. So uh, thanks for joining us on that journey. And uh, we're going to keep pushing for sure uh, to deliver something that's uh, quality and meaningful. Speaking of which, today's guest is Leslie Rosales, an artist manager with EEG, and that's uh, Imagine Entertainment Group. She also works with uh, C3 Presents, and uh, she is an amazing artist manager. Uh, some of the people on EEG's roster are uh, Nas, Future, uh, Alina Baraz, uh, DJ BAD, and uh, she is absolutely brilliant. She's basically uh, uh, Nas's go-to and uh, he actually calls her a little sis, as you'll hear in the podcast. Uh, she's a talented artist slash manager slash uh, positive force in the music industry and especially in the hip hop industry. And we talk a lot about that. Uh, we start with growing up as a young Filipino woman in South Central L.A. and everything that goes with that and to her beginnings in the music industry, uh, her art, her relationship with her clients, especially Nas. And also we go into uh, charity and uh, some of her uh, some of the causes that are really close to her so uh, it's a really great conversation so before we get into all that just want to answer some questions and do a little bit of housekeeping some announcements uh, we are now on iTunes so if you want to tell your friends about the podcast on iTunes just search for first generation burden and uh, we should come up with the first episode is already up there and we'll continue to uh, have the feed go straight to iTunes. Um, second, there's some questions. Um, like last week, uh, we were getting a lot of messages about uh, the show and uh, just exactly what we're looking at here. So uh, first one is, is the show political? And the answer to that is a little bit complicated. It's a little bit of a yes, a little bit of a no. In general, I don't throw political beliefs out there, but you know, in recent recent times, that uh, that mindset has somewhat changed. But I don't vocally skew uh, towards hardcore politics, and I don't want to steer a conversation in that direction if it isn't going there. So, uh, one episode or one conversation might be about Oreo cookies. <laughs> you know, and just how awesome and delicious they are. But another conversation might be about something like much more uh, earnest and uh, deep seated in um, socioeconomic uh, situations. And really, that's just the range of the show and the range of my interests. So that's really where I like to take it. Um, another question is how many you're trying to do. And uh, my goal personally was always to clear 12 like a like a season on Netflix I'm just trying to do 12 episodes and keep it uh, light and tight with the with the thought that maybe there'd be a season two of this uh, if people were interested uh, but I'm kind of playing it by ear if we get to 12 and we're still into it and we still want to do something then maybe I'll just keep on going I'm, I'm 
going to keep it open-ended at this juncture and I'll let you guys know exactly what, what I really want to do with this. So here's a conversation with Leslie Rosales. Uh, there's a little bit of background noise. She's doing this through Skype, and that won't be the last time uh, we do uh, one of these types of interviews, uh, especially if we're trying to get like a, a really amazing guest who are, are super gracious with their time, just like Leslie. Um, so in the beginning, you're going to catch us uh, chopping it up for a little bit. We, uh, we've we known each other for a little while, and uh, we're just talking about driving down the coast. So you're going to catch us in the beginning of that conversation. If you're not afraid of heights, and driving alongside a cliff, you're good. But that that drive is beautiful. <laughs> See, that actually does kind of freak me out a little bit because I am <laughs> actually deathly afraid of heights. I do actually fear for my life a little bit, and my palms get so sweaty. It's not a good look. <laughs> yeah, take the 101 down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, Don't that, take the one. Exactly, that might be the move. First off, thanks for being here. Uh, totally appreciate you. I know you're a super busy woman and a uh, high caliber, high caliber individual doing what you do. So, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's good to be uh, on this conversation with you on this Skype convo. So, for our listeners, uh, you are the Lizzie Rosales, and you you are a. Uh, you are an amazing talent manager and you are an amazing ah, positive point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you work for uh, Imagine Entertainment Group EEG, correct? Yes. For um, Imagine Entertainment Group and C3 Management, which is uh, a management company within C3 Presents. And C3 Presents is a production company that that puts like big festivals together like Austin City Limits and Lollapalooza. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your roster and like who you're working with right now? Yeah, so I work on the Imagine side of C3. Our current roster is Nas, Future, Alina Baraz, and DJ BAD. And he's a DJ based out here in LA. And, uh, and you're on the road right now, right? Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm driving right now. Not on the road, like on a tour road, but definitely driving on a road, heading to a job right now. Gotcha. Can you say where you're going? And no, that's just a keep a tight situation. Yeah, I can't say where I'm going. Somewhere uh, fun, though. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I love fun. Um, okay, so I, I just want to talk to you um, or uh, roll it back a little bit and just uh, I want to hear about your upbringing and like the, the beginnings. And um, well, I want to start in California, specifically growing up in South Central as uh -huh. a, as a young filipino woman just can you tell us a little bit about the your beginnings and your your youth yeah so born and raised here in la my family lived in downtown los angeles from like well ever since i was born to about 1988 and then 19 late 88 my parents decided to move us dead smack in the middle of south central in the 80s and 90s and back then south central was like that's when shit was real back then <laughs> and why my asian my filipino filipino parents decided to move there i don't know why <laughs> but we were definitely the only asians who were residing in the area and like not working there like not working at a nail shop or a, a liquor store owner like we actually lived in the trenches and it was interesting like i i went to um 95th street 
elementary school, Henry Clay Middle School in Washington Prep, and I was always the only Filipino, the only Asian student at the school. Um, yeah, luckily, like, I didn't were you, have... Were you born here? Were you born here? Yeah. Okay. Born cool. in L.A. Luckily, I didn't have, like... Luckily, like, I wasn't picked on for being different or being Asian. I remember, like, in elementary school, walking home, uh, f- walking home from school, someone said something, like, someone called me Chinese and that I smelled like shrimp, but, like, that didn't, <laughs> oh, that didn't, <laughs> damn, that didn't, that didn't phase me that much, you know, the age of nine, I really don't I actually care. got that in Brooklyn, I got that in Brooklyn, like, two years ago, so, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think we ain't that, that was far like, away from it. <laughs> yeah, that that was the only weird thing I went through, and even we, my family, even made it through the riots. Surprisingly, wow. Um, the LA riots in '92. Sure. Because um, at one at a, a at a certain point within the riots, like they were starting to target the Korean markets, the liquor stores in South Central. And I, I remember asking my mom at a, at a young age, I asked my mom, like, are we safe here? And she said, no, we're fine. And we were like, no one messed, no one like bothered us. I, I even remember my brother looting. So how we old is good. your brother? <laughs> is your brother older, younger? He's older. He's seven years older than I. Got you. Okay. Oh, so he was, yeah he was a he was a teenager at the time gotcha just running wild yep wow so uh in that area what, what was it like uh culturally where when it came to your your personal identity and like how did you identify in uh with the cultural mix in south central did you did you identify with a with a filipino self did you identify with like all the other minorities around you like how'd you feel about all that hmm i you know as a as a kid i really wasn't too aware like say elementary school i really wasn't aware of race i i noticed that my skin was different and sure and, and um, you know, my eyes are a little tighter than everyone else's, but, you know, we're kids. <laughs> All we cared about is recess and yeah. having cookies, yeah. sharing cookies during lunch. Um, and luckily, like, those same friends who I had in high school, I ended up going to middle school with them. So that, you know, those friendships continued. Mm-hmm. And I think in middle school is when I realized, like, okay, I'm different. Sure. Um, and I actually didn't realize I was different until like I would go to family parties and realize like, okay, I talk a little differently as far as like, you know, I speak in slang a lot or my cousins will say, yeah, you talk black. Um, <laughs> I really couldn't like click with my family because I was so like kind of engulfed in South Central in black culture let me let me just say be straightforward with it i was so engulfed in, in yeah in black culture from going to a school that was predominantly black yeah. with a sprinkle of of mexicans in there wow you know it's so funny that you say that because i grew up in jersey and mm-hmm. i 
I grew up in a suburb of South Orange, which was, um, you know, pretty typical suburb in Jersey. And then I went to elementary school in East Orange um, and it was an all black elementary school. And I didn't have any friends of any other race until I was 14. Mm, you know? mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was literally like, you was the only Asian kid in the entire school. I remember I had one white classmate in second grade, Laura, then she bounced in third grade. Yeah. I and didn't even have that. I didn't, oh, really? It, wow. I've never been a, like, I've never been in grade school with a white person or even another Asian. What about, uh, how was, how was high school for you? High school was great. High school was easy. I think it's easier for for Asian females because my I went to the same high school that my brother went to and he had a hard time there um he was the only Asian and he was I know he had gone into fights before and you know he hated high school he hated that high school and didn't want me to go there thinking that I would have the same problem but I actually didn't like I I, I got very involved um I played softball like my freshman year and then sophomore year i joined a dance team and if you were like a dancer a cheerleader or an athlete you're like cool right. <laughs> at my high school so yeah i got involved and yeah high school was pretty easy for, i didn't have any problems uh when it came to dance was it like a choreo thing or a pep thing uh yeah choreography it was dance and drill so like in order to be on the dance team you had to do drill and like spin flags with the band and do field shows during halftime football games and all that shit yeah damn i had to do all of that but um <laughs> were you also high school was go ahead oh sorry uh were you also involved in like cotillion culture i gotta ask like you were you all up in no. cotillions really no oh, that's so interesting i didn't even have like um traditionally for filipino females when when you turn 18 you have like a, a debutante ball like i didn't even have that Really? Because I was so, I was disconnected from my own culture, from Filipino culture. Oh, uh, did you, did you ever want to make strides to, to bring that closer or, or for you, is it, it's not even, or is it not even about that? I started to when I became an adult. Sure. Um, I've been blessed enough to, I've traveled to the Philippines maybe like eight or eight or nine times my whole life and now as an adult i try to go every year but i think when i turned somewhere in my 20s i wanted to know more about myself my family where we came from and and how i even got here i wanted to know more about my history and more about filipino culture so i got i became more interested in my my own culture in my in the filipino culture when i became an adult really uh, does that does that filter out into your personal life and your creative life at all? It does. Yeah, absolutely. Like knowing my roots and where I came from, and every time I travel to the Philippines, I'm a painter as well. So every time I right. travel to the Philippines, I I bring one suitcase that's just full of canvases, paints, and brushes. And when I'm there, I I paint. Like I want to be inspired by the Philippines and, and where I'm from and create from that. That is amazing. I was I was uh, doing a little bit of research, and also I, I know that you're a painter, and I see your work on Instagram, and it it's beautiful. And I Thanks. I was re yeah absolutely, and I was reading that you only uh, picked up a brush very recently. No, 
Yeah, that's even that story is interesting. That's um, trippy. I feel like we're getting way ahead, but I'm I'm curious. <laughs> uh, if you want to skip to how I started painting, I actually started painting at Nas's house. <laughs> um, yeah, can you tell us about that? That's a crazy story. Yeah, he he was doing a shoot where they were. He was going to be filmed painting, and after the shoot, I asked him if I could like just mess around a little bit or paint something. He said, "Yeah." And I ended up painting the beach and like a, a portrait of the beach. And it was actually pretty cool. He told me like, hey, that's cool. So every time I would come over his place, I'll just paint. And it was super, it would be very, it is therapeutic for me. So I continue to do so. And eventually I bought my own supplies and I started painting at my house. But yeah, the origin of me painting is definitely like my first 15 paintings were at Nas's house. Wow, that that is definitely a an atypical experience <laughs> for an <laughs> artist, that's for sure. Do, do you try yeah. to do you try to hit a personal quota or are you more of like a reactionary person? You say it's meditation, but uh, how often do you really get at it? Um I think what my first year in 2014, I was pumping them out. Like I was painting something new every week. And um, I never had intention to like have art shows or to even sell any of my pieces. Yeah. Um, I would just paint something, post it on Instagram, like, hey, this is what I did. Uh, and people would comment, like, hey, that's cool. Sometimes someone will say, well, someone will comment something like, hey, I want to buy that. How much? And I wouldn't reply because, you know, that's not my intention to sell the work. Sure. And then one one day my friend called me and said, hey, stop ignoring me. How much is that painting? <laughs> I said, oh, shit. Well, maybe this can turn into something. Exactly. And so, so that was April 2014 when I had gotten that call from my friend. So then after that, I felt like, well, shit, let me put... Let me put an art show together and just see what happens. And I was painting like a piece every week or painting like two to three pieces simultaneously. And yeah, I had an art show, sold maybe about 40% of the paintings that I had there. And um, yeah, but as of that was in 2014, but now this year I haven't painted as much. Now I'm not about quantity and more about quality like more more bigger quality pieces than a bunch of like 16 by 20 paintings just sure. laying around sure do you do you value exploring your curiosity it seems like you like to you like to float around with passion yeah absolutely i i don't i was actually looking at my paintings the other day i don't have a style like i don't have a distinct style to where you could see this painting and say, and say like oh that's how all of you know her paintings look like like my paintings I, I don't have a style yeah i don't know if that's a good or bad thing but I, uh i think that's actually a great thing uh personally as a, as a person who knows a little bit about art <laughs> you know like uh <laughs> i i I think that no style is a great style, especially in in the current in the current world where um, we are reactors to our context. You know, mm -hmm. so if 
if your style is simply yourself it's like that that bruce lee video is just be water you know and then if you really take that mm -hmm. to heart you can that's completely viable and it's not bullshit either yeah okay well good <laughs> <laughs> um i, I want to roll it back just a little bit i just want to talk about your beginnings in the music industry and okay. or and your interest in music and uh that world like where do you think that started for you uh let's see my love for music has started ever since i was little like i don't know about uh you but in my household definitely like typical asian shit gotta learn how to play the piano oh yeah or a violin oh, yeah. you gotta you gotta pick one oh, <laughs> and yeah. i picked the piano so at a young listening age to, listening to the lay miz soundtrack and <laughs> Miss <Saigon. Yep. laughs> my yep. sis my sister just uh humming on my own <laughs> you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah so at a young age i started playing the piano like i think elementary school in middle school i was in a choir um, in high school, I was a, I was a dancer, mm -hmm. and I was also in drama. So I did like all the school plays and musicals. So I've always had a love for performing arts and and music. Um, how, let's so, see, how did I get into this? Go ahead. Yeah, like like what what I'm trying to get at is the what are the steps and and the leaps that one has to take to go from you know the the teenage amateur with like varied interests into like deep in it uh deep in a position that you are now you know like what, what was what was the first sleep where was like where okay i'm i'm kind of making a little bit of money here right the first leap is actually doing it because sure, sure. and wanting to and just wanting to do it not 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 doing it for the money or for the look or just to say you work work with a certain artist. You do right. it for the love of music, and and like I was told this in the very beginning. Like there are more heart surgeons than there are artist managers. So like if it's gonna be a tough job because there's no book, there's no class, there's no specialized school for music management or even entertainment industry. It's definitely learn as you go. And as soon as you get in it, and as you're learning, you're definitely going to fail. You're going to learn some crazy-ass lessons. Yep. You, you know, you'll probably get cursed out. Um, you'll probably make no money in the beginning. But it's something you just have to want to do because you have a love for it. And I already had a love for music. And um, it was something new and different. And I felt like I had the guts to do it. Uh, and, did, uh, did you start with Did you start with management of like DJs, or was it more of an event promotion thing? Well, what were you? What well, was, it started you know, with a. It started. I started off as a promoter here in LA from gotcha. like the age of fifteen. From like two thousand to two thousand and nine, I was a promoter out here in LA. Got it. When I was in in high school, oh, I promoted live, high living school parties. The, that flyer life, I'm sure. Yes, the old school flyer life, standing outside of schools or standing outside of clubs, passing oh, yeah. out flyers. Yep, definitely come from that era. Um, so I started off as a promoter. Uh, when what, I was, what clubs would you be promoting? 
the clubs, 21 and over clubs out here, uh, they're not, they don't even have the same name anymore. Um, area, Basque, Ivar, Facade, Sugar, Sugar. Um, Forbidden City, Garden of Eden, Upside Down Club. Upside Down Club. Wow. Those are the ones I can think of. Uh, were, they the mo- were they mostly like hip hop vibes, or was it like? Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think like a like drum and bass yeah, they, even. Like they call it upscale out. urban, upscale urban, but all that is is a hip hop club in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> the upscale urban clubs in Hollywood. That's <laughs> that's what I promoted. <laughs> so after uh, so after club promotion, what was what were the next steps? I um about two to three years into promoting clubs, well twenty one and over clubs, I started managing one of my best friends who started who was who wanted to become a DJ or who, who was trying to break out as a DJ. And so I would beg my partners to let him open up for whoever the headlining DJ was. Mm-hmm. And um and I did that for a year, and and he would get like breaks here and there. Definitely got a lot of no's. Like, no, who the hell is he? Um, we don't really want him to DJ here, or no one really knows his name, or we don't know what his skill level is like, so <laughs> we won't we won't let him spin here. But I had a couple breaks, and that's all he really needed. Is it is this college for you or post college? <laughs> this is post college. Gotcha. So like an oh yeah, like oh seven oh eight. Got it. And um. Yeah, and he had gotten a break. Like, uh, this new young promo group came out, or were starting off, and their market was, they, their market were like the, the just turned 21 to 25 year olds. So, like, the young Hollywood crowd, and they gave him a break, and now he's like their official DJ, and he DJs like, he has like four to five residencies a week here in Hollywood. Wow, are, so, are you still with him? Yeah, still with him. Oh, what, what's his name? DJ BAD. Oh, that's DJ BAD. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so... How start- important is loyalty to you, especially for relationships like that? Uh, loyalty is absolutely important. Um, integrity is everything. Right. Uh, keeping your word and all that shit is important to me. Sometimes that's all you have. And in the music industry, sometimes there aren't any like any contracts, and everything's based on a handshake. And you just gotta live up to the things you say. You live up to the things that you say that you're gonna do. Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of uh, this group, and this was EEG, or was this something else? Uh, the name of the promo group is called Supreme Team LA. Got it. So, so you started with Supreme Team. The promo group that started to book my DJ is called Supreme Team. Um, the company that I work for, Imagine Entertainment Group, we started around 2006. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, so Imagine Entertainment Group, EEG, we started in 06. And um, we're, there, there are six of us and we are like the leftovers of like the promo group that I was initially with, like in high school and college. So oh, six of us. Um, 
you're the, you're the yes. guys that survives yeah the the last one standing <laughs> yeah exactly the survivors that, that thrived and blew it blew it up yeah so six of us we just stopped promoting and decided you know let's get into some other shit and um our ceo anthony soleil he he moved to new york and he moved to new york to be a talent booker and um so he was booking for he was booking talent for like alicia keys or kelly and a couple other acts and then he started booking shows for nas mm -hmm. and anthony came in at a time where nas like fired his whoever was managing him like he fired his whole team and then there's anthony what what was the reason for that can you say or was this just I actually like a don't time know to break why off? really yeah I, I think it was just now it's time to break off with with them what, what year um, was he that fired 2000 between 2006 and 2007 okay okay um before his uh before the untitled album came out got it but was this so was this pre-jay-z beef post jay-z beef post post definitely okay. post yeah okay I was in high school during that beef, by the way. Oh, ironically, oh, I was you know team Nas. You're right. <laughs> oh, that's that. See, that's so funny. I want to ask yes. you about like East West, like those things that those even matter to you at the time. Could you even see yourself as as like a, a girl growing up in South Central, like managing and uh, the East Coast talent? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, when the pocket and Biggie stuff was going on, when it was, when it was East West, I was definitely West. Come on. Oh yeah, sure, um, of course, of course. <laughs> and with Jay and Nas, I just remember I was a senior in high school, and I was definitely Team Nas. Yeah, it's funny because I was Team Nas too, but uh, you know, um, I I I feel that uh, that there was a triumph there, so that's what's up. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so uh, so you were saying um, at the time. Um, your CEO had, had started booking for Nas. Yeah, he started booking for Nas and and one day a switch just flipped and he became Nas's manager. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, so that was like around 2007 and after that we had like kind of solidified like okay we're, we're, we're a serious management firm yeah. now so and, Na and Nas was the first big sign was he? Yeah, he's our very first big, big yeah. Wow. Well, um, so at at that point, like, uh, from a scalability uh, perspective, does it go from your your booking? I don't know. Let's say one thousand, two thousand, three thousand seat venues, and working with a certain level, and then all of a sudden it's just stadiums arenas things and like huge crazy festivals or what you had you already dipped into that world we hadn't dipped in that world at all it was at something absolutely new for us at the time we were we were all in our early 20s anthony was maybe 21 at the time i was 23 we were all very young and and now i just took a risk of hiring this young group of people with his career did, did you ever have the sense that oh my god we're in over our heads or were you guys just rolling with it like let's just do it who gives a shit 
the lather. I don't think we ever thought like, oh shit, we can't do this or oh shit, this is too much. It's like, oh shit, we're in it. Let's fucking do it. Whatever it fucking takes to do it. When when you guys were in grind mode, can you talk about like how how intense it would get? Like how many sleepless nights? Like what's what's the level of grind mode that you guys would crank it to? The level of grind mode is like 500 emails a day. Phone starts going off at 6 a.m. because Def Jam is New York based, mm-hmm. and we're on the West Coast. So right, right. So yeah, phone starts going off at six, like 500 emails a day. Phone like conference calls and every other hour, moving around, um, mm-hmm. traveling back and forth from LA to New York, or even if we're on tour, hopping on a bus, doing a show, going to the after show, after party. Waking up at six in the morning, get on a flight just to do it all over again at twelve. The, the grind was definitely real. Um, it's it's an experience like no other, and it's something you definitely need to have a heart for. <laughs> sure. Um, because you won't have you don't have a regular life. Yeah. Like you, you kind of have to abandon your friendships and not see family as much and you know LA for a while LA was I'm, I'm not gonna say LA was no longer home but LA was a home that I never went back to for a while <laughs> hmm. um, when it comes to sacrifices is that something that that you see or let me rephrase it like and when it comes to sacrifices, do you hold do you hold that as a point of pride? Because when I when I think about like my career and the steps that I've made for that, uh, for what I've tried to attain or have attained, I think man, the sacrifices like it. At sometimes it sucks, but sometimes it's just a badge of honor that makes me feel that like it it self validates my effort. Do you ever feel that way? I think. The sacrifice I've made absolutely necessary for me in my career, and like they they were things I I had to get rid of or do in order for me to get as far as I've gotten. Right. And I, you know, my my sacrifices aren't even grimy ones. They're just like sacrifices, like you know, less time with friends and family. Um, I kind of feel like I sac- I definitely sacrificed a big part of my life, like not having my own life and my life having to revolve around someone else's career. Yeah. Um, but I think in all, this shit was worth it, man. Yeah, totally. The, can you can you talk a little bit about like uh, just the hip hop industry and and how hard it it is to be a woman or at least what i imagine it is is are, are there difficulties that you face Wait, that you have to deal with all the time or uh, what's your thought on that um it was definitely difficult in the beginning because no one knew who i was i was just a young little asian girl like who the hell is this <laughs> in this hip-hop world um is this on Nas's team or just even at the beginnings uh in the beginning, just kind of overall, not even just specifically being on Nas's team. Sure. Just in the beginning, um, people looking at me like, hey, what are you doing here? Are you sure you're in the right place? Um, 
And I think I've always been a person where, like, I don't, I'm not really a, a gloater or, like, I don't name drop and all of that. Like, I'll, I would literally walk into a room and I really don't like to talk about myself, mm-hmm. who I am, what I do, and why I should be there. I, le- I like to let people try to, f- like, figure out for themselves, like, who I am and why I am there and why I should be there and why they should talk to me. Um, That's luckily, a great strategy. Like, I've, I love that strategy. Absolutely. I work, I've worked with, like, Nas is amazing. Um, our whole team, like, Nas only keeps, like, good, positive people around him. And, like, I was the only female in the group. And all the guys definitely looked out for me as far as, like, I, I remember I'd be in the studio and a producer or another artist would walk in. They'll say hi to Nas, of course, and say hi to all the other men in the studio, but wouldn't say anything to me. But Nas, Nas is the type of person to say, oh, and hey, and that's Leslie right there. Make sure you introduce yourself to her. And so... That's amazing. Yeah, and then people would come up to come up to me and say, "Oh yeah, my bad, I didn't see you. My name is blah blah blah." I'm like, "Oh hi, I'm Leslie." And um, yeah, like the team would make people acknowledge me and respect me just as much as they're respected. Right. The team was definitely strong. Do Do you see yourself as a as a leader within like the female community within hip hop? I'm trying to think if who are the female leaders within the hip hop. I think I'm not going to say I don't think I am a leader. I'm definitely one of the so, one of the female soldiers alongside of the other women in hip hop. Sure. Is there yeah. is is there a camaraderie within that world? Yep. Yeah. Within the real ones, yes. Really. Yeah. There's definitely camaraderie and and women power, pussy power. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Amongst, amongst like the real ones, like there yeah. are definitely some some off ones that are a little shisty, but you know those aren't the real ones who sure. don't have real power. But yeah, I'm gonna talk a little bit about I guess uh, a little bit of the nitty gritty of the uh, what it takes to to fill the role that you fill. Because in my time when I've worked on with Broadway for almost two years, um, and then de- and you know talking to performers within that world, and they are essentially athletes, which is an amazing thing to me. And for longevity, it takes you know time and maintenance of oneself, not just physically but mentally. It's like, like what do you think are aspects of a performer's maintenance that? that we as fans may not even realize the discipline it takes to be able to operate the way they do the the pressure of having to create music and 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 art like i don't think like the regular consumer understands like how much work is put into like say a concert um yeah, there's a lot of pressure for artists to yeah. have to perform in front of that many people to create and write, especially in hip hop, to create and write all your lyrics 
mm-hmm. um, and to perform it, to record it, then perform it, or record it, try to sell it, then perform it. Um, yeah, there's there's so much that goes into it. Even on a production standpoint, like there's there's so many moving parts backstage that the regular person doesn't know. Right, for sure. What what's the what's the mindset of do you think like um, an artist that's like really in the zone? Like when they when they come on and they come off. Like is it is it intensity all the way through? Is it like intensity for spurts and then maybe just like complete let go or? you know, work hard, play I think, hard. I think there, there's definitely intensity in the beginning because there's intensity of like a little bit of nervousness and anxiousness. But once a performer is on stage, they're just letting it all out and letting it all go. And it's, I, th- I see it as more so as a release for them. Right. How? Yeah. Oh, they're, they're coming for you, yo. <laughs> <laughs> What, what do you what do you think is um, well, I'll just let that car pass uh, what do you think is uh, the key to your longevity and like what what is your energy like do you, do you feel yourself uh, maintaining the edge or do you soften are you softening a little bit as you as you mature I always keep I'm always on edge sure um I'm definitely always on edge because any little mistake could be detrimental. Like any anything. Um, can you can you talk about any low points or? Um, I can't because I can't mention any other any other artists. Sure, no, don't no, don't even worry about. It. Can, you, can you talk in loose terms about like this <laughs> this human being did a thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll wait for that check to pass sure sure um had an artist early in in my career um a new artist and um within about not even a year of working with this artist they decided to split ways from us and that was this person's day-to-day manager and for a good while i felt like it was my fault maybe i wasn't too attentive to this person I wasn't on top of everything I should have done better I should have you know called them every day to see if they're okay I should have been in a studio every single night like I felt like I wasn't on top of my shit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we had lost this artist and then a year later um I ended up crossing paths with this artist again and he told me like yo don't ever think like it didn't work out because of you. You were always like, you were the best. And he, well, you obviously know the gender now. He told me that, um, that I was, that he wished after we all had parted ways, he wished that I was still on the team, but Oh really? Wow. You know, it just didn't work out that way. So yeah, for a while I felt like shit, I'm a shitty ass manager. I didn't do my job. <laughs> I wasn't on top of my shit. So when I did start working with Nas heavy, like I was on top of everything. I, right. I wasn't going to let there be a part two. It's funny how sometimes there are just forces beyond our control that we, we don't even realize yeah yeah 
So uh, to go back to uh, the longevity thing, um, I I saw Nas last year at the Sprite Corner when they closed the Sprite oh, yeah. Corner down in in the yeah. Lower East Side, and one yeah. uh, it was him and Green Lantern, and it was fucking amazing. And I was right <laughs> I was right up close, and like I it was right up close. I could have like you know taken a vial of his sweat. Like I was that close right and i was amazed <laughs> i was amazed at the level of energy the level of commitment and the consistency and um and i know that that takes uh, an amazing team um behind it to to uplift the artist so w- what do you think are your personal contributions to that longevity hmm my contributions i think have been me not only being there as part of his management team, but me being there as like his friend. Like he calls me sister. That's what's up. And and just that relationship outside of work, that we all really do care about each other, and we all really do care about his best interests. Like I think that's what keeps him comfortable with trusting us. Mm-hmm. So he knows, like, the business is always going to get taken care of. All he has to worry about is being himself, being the performer, and not having to worry about all the other business shit that's going on. Wow. That's great. I just want to flip over to some personal stuff. I know you're involved with Hashtag Lunchbag. Yep. And I know that's a big passion of yours. Can you just uh, tell the listeners, like, what that is and what that means to you? Yeah, Hashtag Lunchbag is a, a nonprofit here in L.A. And um, it started in 2013. Six of my friends, I, I'm not one of the founders, but six of my friends are. Gotcha. They, one Chris, well, Christmas, I think 2000, two, Christmas 2012, you know, they were feeling a certain way. They wanted to give back, so they went to the grocery store, went home, made some lunches, and just went outside and started passing them out on Christmas Day to to people who were hungry. Mm-hmm. And um, they shared their experience on social media, on IG and Facebook, and they made up this hashtag, 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 lunchbag, <laughs> like hashtag is spelled out. Right. Um, and they they posted it on, on Instagram and that, and they, they did it again in January, that the following January again posting it on social media and people were interested like hey what what is that and when they when they figured out it was like a, a good deed not only was it like a good deed like you're, you're making lunches and passing them out to the homeless like it was a cool good deed it made well it made giving back look fun mm. And so I was one of those intrigued followers I, my friend AJ he's one of the founders he invited me to an event. And I went and I was just so inspired by it because you, there's, it's more than just, you know, making a sandwich and giving it to a homeless person. Like you're also giving, you're feeding someone and you're also feeding yourself. Yeah. You're feeding your soul. Right. Um, after that experience with, um, that one experience with Hashtag Lunchbag LA, the next month after after that, I started. I flew myself to Atlanta and I started a hashtag lunch bag down there. And then, um, yeah, I started in Atlanta. I started it in my own community in South Central. And um, 
yeah, the shit is just great. That's amazing. How many just, how many people come out to the events? To hashtag lunchbag LA, our main event every last Sunday of the month, about a hundred volunteers come out and we make about fifteen hundred lunches. And then do you guys distribute the same day as well? Yeah, we we start making this, the lunches at ten AM and we distribute them by twelve noon to um Skid Row. Have you been to Skid Row here in LA? Um, I've driven by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you you've seen how serious that whole area is yeah it's it, basically a, a a small village of of homeless people yeah it's it's interesting because in new york and and brooklyn there's there is, of course is a, a similar problem but there is just i know the energy is such that that they're disenfranchised in a completely it's it's upsetting really and then uh-huh. coming out here to portland um that problem exists on an even bigger scale and and in um yeah it's it's a uh, it's magnified out here in in, oh, in, wow. interest, in an interesting way yeah that's so hashtag lunch bag is, is an amazing cause i think actually this area could use some of that too how how there, por- the, there actually is a portland group Oh, is it really? I should hook up with them. Yeah, I'll I'll send you a, a link to their account. Oh, that's what's IG up. Account. That's cool. Um, how important is charity to you and good works? Ah, oh, charity is important. Like, I think I I wouldn't have gotten through high school without mentors, like great teachers who like older people who are great, not only great teachers, but just great mentors and who enjoyed giving back um, to young adults. And I've had a lot of that. Like I've had a lot of people give back to me, like not in like monetary or, you know, giving me a lunch as I'm giving out lunches, but you know, I had people who cared and they're, I'm not going to say there aren't enough people caring in the world, but we need more people to care about others and just to look out for the human race because shit is crazy right now. Yeah. And Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> and we just, you know, we just have to help each other out. Agree. And help others out. Well, um... Thank you so much. I hate to take up too much of your time. Anything that you want to let our listeners know about that's important? Um, I'm definitely going to start working. I'm I'm, (laughs) going to start working with a new artist soon. Oh, that's cool. I can't say, yeah, I can't say who, but. God damn it, Leslie. I'm so curious. (laughs) Definitely excited to, um, to work with with new talent um hashtag lunch bag is still going we are in over 120 cities around the world yeah and i'm planning i uh, have a couple art shows coming up next year in los angeles and cool. i'm sure i'll make my way to new back to new york um yeah 2017 will definitely be interesting and fun nice that's what's up we gotta visit us over in portland at some point and vice versa. Oh, I'm down. Yeah. I will. Yeah. That'd be cool. All right. Well, Leslie Rosales, thank you so much. Um, is there anywhere um, is there anywhere our uh, listeners can follow you on social meds? Yeah. Um, my name, very easy. 
on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is my name, Leslie Rosales. And um, what else is there? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Twitter and Instagram, Leslie Rosales. Real easy. Thank you so much, Leslie. I appreciate you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. So that was Leslie, and she's awesome. Uh, that was a really great conversation that we had. And uh, I know that I left that conversation inspired. So I hope you guys did too. So if you want to subscribe to us on iTunes, just look for First Generation Burden. Make sure you tell someone uh, and really pass the message out there. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, it's just rich underscore TU. That's on Instagram and Twitter. Rich to one word on Snapchat if you're into that shit. Uh, for music, uh, we dropped in a bit of a sample of It Ain't Hard to Tell off of Nas's classic album, Illmatic. And the intro and outro music for this podcast are done by Ben Sound. So thanks for tuning in. Next week, we're going to have designer extraordinaire uh, Juan Carlos Pagan. And he is the designer behind uh, the branding on Pinterest, as well as just an amazing, prolific individual. And uh, he's, we're going to talk a lot about uh, what he does and really get into a great conversation about uh, his process and uh, what's meaningful to him. So we're going to do that. Have a great Thanksgiving week. Talk to you next time. My name is Rich Tu, and thanks for listening to First Generation Burden.